0: You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com.
1: Thank you for listening.
2: Good morning, everyone. Welcome to NSPS Radio Hour for another exciting hour with us. And uh, our guest today is Lloyd Tolbert. Lloyd, welcome.
3: Good morning, Kurt.
2: Are you fully awake?
3: I am. I actually thought we were starting an hour earlier, so I'm more awake than I thought I'd be. <laughs>
2: Okay. What time did you get back yesterday? Did you get back yesterday?
3: Um, I got to sleep about 2 a.m.
2: Wow. For Oh, for the audience, by the way, Lloyd and I are talking about uh thinking everybody knows what we're talking about. Uh, Lloyd was just in Hawaii recently for how long, a week?
3: Uh, Ten days, visiting my daughter.
2: Yeah, ten days. So, well, it's such a bad deal to have to have a daughter in Hawaii that you have to go visit. That's...
3: It, it's horrible but I, I I vowed never go into February and beginning of March. They've had they had it was uh basically around seventy the whole time and uh, blustery the wind blew, so it I I know a lot of people aren't gonna have a lot of sympathy for that, but <laughs>
2: <laughs> Yeah. Speaking of, of weather, um I know the all these crazy storms have been coming across the country and hitting here and north of here primarily and of course the, the really I won't say more dangerous, but certainly maybe more immediately dangerous uh, tornadoes and those kind of things have been hitting in the south. You guys kind of you don't get that kind of thing, do you?
3: Well, actually, the I was supposed to leave on a Monday morning, and the Sunday night before we had the largest twenty-four hour snowstorm uh, Eugene has ever had, and so Mike. Flight got put back two days, and I actually had to shovel 15 inches of snow in my driveway to get out of here to get, in the, get to the
2: airport. Well, well, I guess I should tell the owners. Uh, Lloyd's in Eugene, Oregon. <laughs> so uh, when he's talking about Eugene, that's where he's talking about. Well, I guess I'm lucky then because when I came out to the conference recently, the, the weather wasn't bad.
3: It was beautiful.
2: So that, that all worked out well for, for me. Uh, and some of my trips this year I've gone in snowy areas and haven't avoided the snows here very well though they seem to still come when I'm at home so uh, it's yeah. been a, been an interesting year all around for uh, for weather up and down the, the, the country and across the country for that matter but oh I'm sorry I no,
3: remember go ahead. Growing up in, I remember growing up in Richmond we back in the uh, 60s we used to have some pretty good snows there.
2: oh yeah. Yeah, I've talked about a number of times on the show the 1960 in particular and 1966 where I was and back in the mountains was really rough and that those I think pretty much consumed the whole state back in those days. Yeah. So, so you let's see you I don't even know how close you are and I are in age. Um, You grew up in Richmond. What time frame?
3: Well. to begin with, I was born in Whithville, and uh, you lived right. Ac- you you grew up right across the uh, mountain in Hillsville, right? Yeah, Withville's yep. in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia, right. And you grew up right over the mountain, but I we moved to uh, Richmond in 1959, and I was there until 77. So I did all my primary growing up there in Richmond, where I got my start as a surveyor.
2: Right. Yeah, that. Um that whole deal there between Hillsville and and uh, is kind of interesting because as the interstates developed um, of course 81 developed earlier than 77 and uh, so because of that With County uh, really picked up a lot of commercial activity and business activity associated primarily, I won't say primarily but certainly somewhat with with that interstate and of course highway 52 still went through withville and hillsville but 77 didn't come along till later um and so that that confluence of 77 north south and 81 kind of east west in a sense although it's kind of north south um made Withville a, a really hot spot for businesses and um A guy that I grew up with, he's a few years younger than I am, Um, his sister and I graduated high school together, but um, he had, I was out of school a few years before college, as all my listeners know, and he and I ended up going to school together, but he worked with me at a firm in Blacksburg for years, and then he took a job, he was sort of one of our uh, rainmakers out in the southwestern part of the state, and he actually took over as a county administrator for Wythe County, and was really responsible for a lot of the industry that came to that area, and he just retired recently. But it, it was interesting how that that dynamic of where the two interstates came together um, created a really prosperous area, and then my home county of, Virginia, of Carroll is still, I won't say it's poor, but but it's certainly not on the same level as, as With. that's for sure. Well, Wytheville was a metropolis
3: when I... When I was born there, of course, I was born on the uh, at Dr. Chitwood's clinic on the second floor of a department store. And uh, as a matter of fact, my uncle, who I'm named after, my dad, had to wait downstairs in the department store while I was being born because the men didn't go in the uh, birthing rooms those days. And uh, my uncle bought my uh, father his our first family TV the day I was born. <laughs>
2: Yes yeah, it's interesting that that uh, we're talking about withville today on the show because just on Facebook uh, I guess I saw it this morning or maybe it was yesterday or sometime um there was a a whole thread of messages about polio, and I don't know if there's some kind of resurgence in polio that caused that to happen or not, but one of the posts was a sign on the highway outside of withville, which this was from the late fifties I guess or Maybe maybe mid fifties even, um, and it said, you know, we have a nice town. We'd love for you to come, but we have a polio epidemic here. So we understand if you drive on past. And uh, and I hadn't realized, you know, growing up there and all those all those years that that Whitfield was one of the places that was really hit hard by polio. Right in that same time frame.
3: Yeah, our next uh, door neighbor, grow- our next door neighbor growing up was a, a school principal and. Uh, enrichment Richmond and a polio survivor and uh yeah it's, it's amazing that we don't have it anymore that that's a miracle
2: yeah it is and and like i said i i know that there's been a resurgence of some diseases and a lot of people blame that on the fact that that the vaccinations and, and immunizations aren't being used to the same extent they were for all those years between then and, and now just because of trying to stop, you know, keep those kind of things from recurring. So right. I'm gonna to have to do a little research to see if if there's something going on that 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 facilitated that uh, that thread, or if it's just a bunch of people reminiscing.
1: Yeah,
3: but speaking of reminiscing and just talking
2: familiarity, maybe we ought
3: to enlighten the audience that um, one one of the purposes for this call was because we are friends and. And have become friends over the years, and and I am actually a surveyor and do survey work. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But we're, but we're also but we're also fellow musicians and uh, Virginians, and we have a lot of commonalities that uh, that let us you know speak on this level.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's true. The uh, the only part of that that's not exactly true is you're a musician. I'm somebody who owns a guitar.
3: Well, i so, you know you've you published two CDs which I have not done yet. So I even have in my notes here that I'm jealous of you for having two CDs out.
2: Yeah, well, <laughs> that doesn't mean anything. That just means there was a guy who was willing to take my money. <laughs> That's as far as that goes. But but you've done you've done this uh, the whole music thing, I guess, all your life, and see, things seem to be going really well with that now and in in Eugene
3: yeah i i uh, inherited my first two harmonicas I'm a harmonica player and a singer and inherited my first two harmonicas from my uncle Gladys Talbert uh, from Cincinnati, Ohio when he passed away. My aunt knew I loved harmonica and she sent me a couple the following year I accidentally uh on purpose uh, in February of my senior high senior year in high school wound up hitchhiking down to uh, the Mardi Gras. And, wound up in the California and didn't graduate that year. I wound up being a usually high school dropout, but while I was out hitchhiking around the United States, Canada, Europe in 1972, I learned a lot of harmonica licks. And and then a year later, I uh, had the nerve to get up on stage. And now during the recession, uh, boy, things were getting pretty tight here. And my wife looked at me and said, Hey, you need to figure out something else to do, and this survey business isn't paying so well these days. And so I um, started pressuring my friends to have me join them on stage, and sure enough, it became pocket money for those expenses your kids have during the week. And uh, then I just continued on, and uh, now I'm in a band, a trio. a duet, we're playing wineries and clubs and breweries and private parties and all kinds of different venues, uh, and, and it's, between that and my survey business, which I've owned since 2006, it's, uh, it's you know, the uh, business is doing much better now, so it, it's uh, two, two pretty full-time jobs right now.
2: Yeah, it sounds like it. I, I remember early on, and of course you know me well enough to know that I'm uh, equally uh, ill-informed and uh, and somewhat uh, comedic in the way I do things. Mm-hmm. But uh, I remember one time we were yeah, somewhere, so and you were talking about um, harmonicas with different, I guess I, I would say chords, but notes, because you said something about a... And, and you've got a lot of harmonicas, I know that. But... Uh, I, I I asked the question sort of uh, half-heartedly about, oh, okay, so when you're playing a song, when you change chords, you have to reach for another harmonica. And and I think that was like, are you crazy?
3: <laughs> well, yeah, when you change key well, you, not when you change chords, but when you change keys, you do have to change harmonicas. Uh, if you're playing the standard marine band ten-hole harmonica that everybody got in their christmas stocking when they were kids you know
2: yeah yeah well that you just told me something though that i really didn't know about i didn't know about the the hitchhiking tour across the country canada and europe oh my god that, that that's an interesting perspective and and actually i'll share something when i know i've shared this with the audience and i may have shared it with you about that same time frame is when uh, when my uncle did his bicycle tour around the world um so who knows? You guys may have run into each other somewhere along the way. There to um, go, but uh, stayed, that,
3: under some and stayed under some interstate bridge together. Yeah, the,
2: yeah, <laughs> probably so. Yeah, but that that sounds very intriguing to and and ambitious. And boy, I don't even know what the adjectives are to to have the, the guts to go do something like that. And
3: well, of I guess it was we have. A
2: yeah, a lot different. That's true. Yeah, that's for sure. Well, we're 10 seconds out from the first break, so let's go do that break, and we'll come back in a couple of minutes and carry on with our conversation. So we'll go to break now.
0: 0387 or go to quickstate.com that's Q-U-I-K-S-T-A-K-E dot com and order your samples. Ask your surveying supply dealer for quickstakes today.
1: Whether cruising the Strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. Cook Immigration Partners is your passport through the immigration maze. Whether it's help with e-verifying your business or help in how to document a new employee under the new I-9 rules Or if you marry a foreign national, Cook Immigration Partners is your best choice for a legal advocate. Call us today at 866-286-6200. That's 866-286-6200. Or visit us on the web at www.immigration.net.
0: You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening
2: back with Lori Tolbert for a conversation today about just fun things. You know, sometimes, uh, Lloyd mm-hmm. on the show, we kind of get focused in on mm-hmm. one particular thing and somebody has a big project mm-hmm. or something they're doing or some new idea or whatever the case may be. Um, I find it, uh, maybe, uh, what's the right word? I'm, uh, therapeutic perhaps <laughs> to just have a conversation like we're having today. Um, because it's it's just about what's going on in the world and what's going on in our lives and, and that kind of thing. And and you mentioned as we were going to break the time change, I guess I I should have realized that, although I'm not really sure I've ever been in Hawaii at during during the time when we change from you know, standard to, to daylight savings. But I guess I just hadn't focused on the fact that they don't change.
3: Yeah, I I believe Arizona doesn't change either and I, I think yeah. Oregon's talking about uh, if I'm, I may be mistaken, but I think Oregon's talking about looking at not changing.
2: Yeah. Well, I know early on, when it first began, back in the 60s, um, there were a number of states that didn't do it. And I mentioned this on the show before. My my then-girlfriend, eventual mother of my son, lived in the same county as me, but it was on at the bottom of the Blue Ridge Mountains on the North Carolina border, and all of their business was in Carolina, so they didn't change time, even though they lived in Virginia. Um, so it made a, an interesting uh, situation with that. All in the same county, people on different different times. Uh, I guess it wasn't all that much different than people across the border, because because it was all so close together anyway. But uh, yeah, it was just interesting. It'll be. I guess I don't know what the reasons are that people would not want to change uh, or keep the same time. Um, I think when it first started, wasn't it related to um, kids having to be in the dark before school or, you know, people that thank caught buses? You. you know, a lot of people where I grew up rode buses to school, so. Right. And, and I don't know if that was the real reason or not, but I, it seemed to be, to us anyway, where we were, that, that that's the, the way it was. So
3: That's what, that within, what
2: I remember. So from Withville to Richmond in 1959, um, that was an exciting trip. Uh, my, my oldest sister was married in 1961, I believe, uh, or 62 perhaps, and moved off to Richmond. So I remember driving those roads from our part of the country where you and I were uh, to Richmond back in those days, and of course... I, that was a big transition coming from a little place like Hillsville, but then again, I guess withfield wasn't all that much bigger either.
3: Well, but we would have to visit back in the uh, early 60s, we'd have to visit our relatives in Kentucky, and we'd go 460. 95 wasn't, or uh, 64 wasn't
2: there then. Is right. It, is it 460 or 60? I, oh, 360. 60. 360 and 460 run east-west in Virginia. So. Yeah, probably 360
3: we would go out. And, uh, boy, I, I remember taking those roads in West Virginia back then before the interstate was in. Because, boy, the turnpike was so bumpy you didn't want to go on that. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah, I think it was the most dangerous road in the country at one time with our three lanes yeah. and trash track for trailers all the time. But
3: so, yeah, my, sure. all my formative years were in Richmond. And that's where i got my first survey job um
2: did you do that pretty re- much right after high school or did you do anything before
3: no i was i was a renegade for a lot of years after high school and uh, let me see 74 so i'd have been 21 january of 1974 um i was sitting in a bar next to my good buddy who had some drugs problems and uh We were just sitting there, and all of a sudden he just looked at me, and he he looked in pretty bad shape, and he goes, Lloyd, you know my dad? um, I work on a survey crew at a survey company, and I'm just not going to be able to make it tomorrow morning. You're looking for a job. Why don't don't you call my dad and see if he can go in my place tomorrow? And so (laughs) I went went home, and uh, I called his dad. His dad said, Come on. And uh my father gave me a ride over there the next morning and uh that was in January seventy four and I've been uh primarily surveying ever since. Well, they got, uh, on day I started out on the back end of a chain on a four man survey crew on a muddy construction site, laying out apartments.
2: Yeah, We're,
3: that was uh FP if anybody out there knows that
2: name. Yeah, I remember the name. Um and I'm certainly, over time, I've worked with or known people through the Virginia Association of Surveyors who were in that company or maybe one of its predecessors, or not predecessors, but successors. Uh, you know how that works, that yeah. the guys who work for one guy and then they get licensed, they go out on their own and sometimes take a few people with them. And so was was that company primarily uh, construction layout, or did, was it varied?
3: No, boundaries. You know, We, uh, I think we did John Tyler's uh, plantation boundary while I was working for that company uh, oh. down on the James River. And, and mm-hmm. uh, a lot of interesting boundary work. And then that's where I learned how to go around trees, you know, stay on a straight line, go around trees, run a transit. Um, it was quite a year. I, I was an instrument man within my first three months. Then a year later, I got fired. He said I'd never make it as a surveyor. And then I went to work for George Stevens and uh, then worked for him for a contract. And then uh, finally went to work for Ron Caruth, who we know in common. And uh, with um, Moore, Hardy, and Caruth, they were subsidiary of Moore Gardner out of uh, Carolina back in the time. And then finally in 1977... Um, one of my friends there uh, said they had jobs. He said, I have a friend that can get us jobs in Alaska. And so October of 1977, we got in my truck and drove to Alaska to find out that we didn't have jobs. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so I was stuck there with my truck. <laughs> and he flew home. <laughs> so wow. anyway.
2: Yeah, So did, that, did you... Did that terminate your time with Carruth at that point?
3: That did, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, I, the I, reason I'm, I asked that. I'm, I'm, qu- yeah. yeah. The
2: reason I asked that question is uh, a good friend of mine um, actually worked for uh, more Gardner or more Hardy Carruth, um, one, a guy named Steve Dowdy. Um, right. Who's in Thanks central Virginia. Virginia now? Yeah, I, I didn't know if you ever ran across Steve back in those days or not.
3: I'm sure I did.
2: I'm yeah, I didn't. Sure I didn't know it. him at that point. He grew up in uh, Buena Vista, Virginia, and then he he's there now in Buena Vista. But at one time, he had a a business uh, over in Lowmore, near Covington, and uh, I was in Blacksburg, and we did a bunch of work down there. And I, I'd gotten to know him and Phil Nestor through VAS, and they did a bunch of work for us over there. So, but but Ron, of course, uh, you and I've talked about this, and for the for the people listening on the on the radio. Ron was actually, I think, if I'm not incorrect, was the very first NSPS governor representing the Virginia Society, our uh, Virginia Association of Surveyors. Um, and then he he moved on, became an area director, and uh, and well, actually, I'm not sure if he became an area director or not because he passed away kind of suddenly. And uh, that that is what began my path into NSPS was. When he passed away, then um, uh, Buford Lumsden out, out of Salem took over for him, and then he was only in for a couple of months when he got appointed to the licensing board, and so that's when VA. So he, he
3: was a he was a pros pro. He he's a good businessman, and and uh, he was he was interesting to watch. He he knew how to delegate, run a company, and and I learned a lot. I learned a lot there just. Kind of just by being there, I was still pretty immature at the time. But um, uh, these were, I think, at my maturity level started to grow. One of the interesting jobs we had there is doing the shift and settlement monitoring, shift and settlement out there at the nuclear power plant in North Anna.
2: Yeah, I, my recollection is that the company did a lot of work for. I guess it was for for Virginia Power.
3: Yeah, we worked for Virginia. That go, uh, yep. all the way from the swamps in eastern Virginia up to the Appalachian and Blue Ridge Mountains in western Virginia and up north. Uh, first people, first time I ever faced a gun as a surveyor. Well, I guess second time. I won't tell you about the first time. Uh, <laughs> but there was a, a group, a coalition in northern Virginia that sat there on their pickups and weren't going to let us survey the power line. They didn't want power lines going through their farmlands. And uh, they met us at a gate. And they just and so we just had to turn around. And I think eventually just, the sheriff surveyed with. I just
2: think <laughs> if if they had succeeded in keeping uh, surveyors out altogether, we might not have this metropolis that we live in here now. <laughs> because you yeah. know, hear all those stories about all the farmland that is now Dulles Airport and all the farmland is it, that is now all these other things. Um, but yeah, that that was a time of uh, excitement and growth and all those kind of things in in the surveying business, that's for sure. And uh, I think all of us kind of got caught up in that. Did I understand you to say that in 1974 you were 21?
3: I would have been, yeah, I I would have been just turning 21 in August of that year,
2: yeah. Yeah, so that makes you almost exactly um, five years younger than me.
3: Right, right.
2: Because my birthday is July 48, so...
3: I play. I play with a lot of. Music, I play with a lot of musicians your age. I'm the, it's the weirdest thing. I'm the youngest guy in the group. Quite often at 65.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's interesting to me. I, we got a couple minutes for the next break, but that whole thing that you're doing with, with the music just fascinates me. Of course, I'm. I'm. I'm a sort of a, a musical voyeur, I guess. I, I I enjoy all kinds of music and, um, and listening to it and and participating in whatever level I can, but just that whole concept of being able to have the time and the freedom and the desire to, to play. And then that always intrigues me when people just show up and my, my, grandson's like that. Uh, you just show up and a bunch of people and, Hey, let's start playing. And they've never even seen each other before. And right.
3: They just, right. They
2: start playing. I think that's a really cool thing.
3: Well, I'm not a train. I'm not a trained musician. I had to learn it by year, So I, if I, if, if I, uh, I I play hundred percent by year
2: yeah I, and I'm the, I'm the same way what what little I play my mom was like that too she she was a great pianist and guitar player and um, she she never studied music at all either but but you know I think I won't say most but certainly a huge percentage of the people that played music and began to play music in that whole from the beginning of the 1900s all the way up uh, particularly places like where we were that's the way everybody right. learned to play not hardly anybody studied music uh, as a matter of fact there really wasn't much place to study music my sisters would go to somebody else's house and you know learn how to play the piano or something but but most people I think in, in, a, in that era uh, played what we call by ear as you mentioned and mm-hmm. quite often I think it's a better deal I, people have a chance to improvise and they're not not constricted by any particular thing they're supposed to be doing. So, well, here I think we are.
3: I think, so, I think the people that play by ear are jealous of the people that know how to read music. The people that read music are jealous of the people that play by ear. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> is the way well, we do have a rich, in Carolina and Virginia, we have a
2: rich, rich
3: musical heritage back right there.
2: We do. It's time to go to break, so let's do that.
0: Does your survey supply dealer have quick stakes? If not, demand that they start carrying quick stakes. Did you know that quick stakes are better for your back than your local chiropractor? Lightweight and easier to use than the old heavy wooden steak. Order a sample today and prove it to yourself. Quick steaks, your back-friendly steak.
3: This is Daryl Pullis inviting you to listen to America's Homegrown Veggie Show right here every Saturday morning at 10 Eastern Time. Great guests, great tips, and valuable information about
0: growing your own vegetables, fruits, and herbs. Quick Stakes is your answer to staking. Lightweight, easy to ride on, easy to use, easy to find, and won't break your back carrying them like the old-fashioned wooden stakes. Have you tried a sample? If not, not Get a pen and paper and write down this number, 800-438-0387, or go to quickstake.com, that's dot com and order your samples. Ask your surveying supply dealer for Quickstakes today. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.
2: You know, Lloyd, as, as we were talking, I, I want to get back, in, and I, I know when you went to Alaska there was no job, but I know you stayed a while, so you had to have found one. But I was just thinking to myself uh, during the break, if you if you look amongst people in our age group, and and I'm sure people somewhat younger than us, um, and probably still today to some degree, but I just wonder how many people are, are like us that almost accidentally fell into into surveying and it just became the love of your life so to speak and something you you really love doing and there's got to be a lot of people like that
3: yeah well i often tell people that uh, I know so many people that have uh, one job that's a drudgery for them but I have two jobs i love so yeah between the music and surveying i, I you know I, I dearly love both jobs
2: it doesn't doesn't get any better when you're able to do things you love, both as an avocation and as a, as your actual profession. And I guess at some point you're going to have to figure out which one of those is going to be the main one. Uh, when when you get too tired to walk around surveying or whatever, then you can just play harmonica all day long.
3: What do you call that when you're phased out by age? I think I think my I you know i i I'm, I'm afraid i I'll probably you know as far as I know I may not be able to do the field work anymore, but I'll probably be sitting at this desk doing something related to surveying or planning uh, to like pass away and then probably music the same thing
2: yeah well I know that's I feel so fortunate to have kind of fallen into this job that I'm doing that Keeps me right in the middle of everything going on in in surveying, and and uh, again, you know, physically, how long are you able to do the the work that you want to do, or, um, or or do you mentally be able to just stand up with all the ups and downs oh. of business in, in a tough world? So,
3: well, I I here, here's another thing I often joke about when people uh, were talking about. I, I I tell people that I've given up. You know, work. You know, we have a lot of uh, woods work up in uh, forest lands here and in uh oregon and the the terrain's pretty steep and treacherous at times and uh i joke and i am i'm a little bit overweight you might say and uh i joke with people you don't you don't want to pay me by the hour to walk up and tell me yeah yeah
2: i can relate to that that's for sure so you were talking earlier about the alaska experience back in the late 70s and uh and you got there and there wasn't any job. And so I'm assuming you didn't just turn around and go back to Virginia.
3: No, I, I, uh, I didn't. I, uh, I did fly home. for. I, I got a job in a waterbed store for a minute in Anchorage. And uh, then saved up enough money to fly home for Christmas and, found, and then made a friend to store my truck home for Christmas, but I wanted, to, I had an urge. I wanted to go back. So I did go back and I drove my uh, truck down what's called the Kenai Peninsula to a place called Homer and it was really bad weather and it was just slippery and I didn't know what I was doing and I didn't find any jobs down in Homer and didn't look good. So I was going to drive back up to uh, Anchorage and I got the little village called Nanilchik and and got talking to a guy outside a convenience store about his dog. And it turns out he did taxidermy and uh, he needed needed a hand. He was just overwhelmed. So I uh, helped skin fish for a a guy that stuffed bodies for a taxidermist and uh, wound up sticking there. And uh, then I got a uh, crabbing job like you see on that TV show on Discovery Channel, and I spent a winter out uh, crabbing in Cook Inlet down near Kodiak on a 62-foot boat, 20-foot seas. I mean, it was very similar, six-by-six-foot crab pots, very similar to what you see on TV, and then um, by that summer, I had made a relationship with a local uh, surveyor, and then from then on, I uh, was able to start, you know, so then I had some Alaskan experience. They didn't want to just see a resume that you've worked for years. They wanted to see some Alaska experience on the uh, resume. So um, wound up doing uh, a, um, a few years of geophysical work in the winters up above the Arctic Circle and then also did a lot of BLM work in the summers and um, and uh, wound up living there nine years. And then because of a family situation, I needed to move south. So. Been a couple of years in Reno and landed here in, in uh, 1989. But I sure have a lot of amazing, amazing experiences out in Alaska, all the way from uh, Kodiak out to uh, the mouth of uh, the uh, Yukon River in Imanac, and even uh, did a job out on St. Lawrence Island in a little place called Kabumga. We uh, have built the road out there. And when you're landing in the airport, you can actually see Russia. <laughs> And so, you know, just a whole variety of experiences that is, you know, too deep to go into here. I mean, there's, there's, it's, it's it's, pretty wild and woolly up there at times, and it's, it's just so sweet. But um, now I've been here since the 80, fall of 88 and uh, just had a great career here. I went from high school dropout in, uh, what, uh, 72 to... Now a professional surveyor in '97, opened my own business in '06. Served as state chair in '04, and then I was uh, on the National Board of Governors, where I got to meet you and several other incredible leading surveyors in our country, and and what a what a incredible career.
2: Yeah, it's the time in Alaska is, is very intriguing because um, when you think about there. And people I talk to, I've never surveyed in Alaska, of course, but I've been there and been on a lot of different places in, in Alaska. But you don't just kind of stroll out to the job a lot of days there. Uh, I'm, I'm sure some of these places where you were doing work, you probably had to fly in just to do it. Uh, float
3: uh, One particular job, we had to float. We had the float plane in from Anchorage and land on a lake, and then we had a helicopter that would take us up. You know what? What you try to do on these really steep jobs. Uh, BLM jobs is you want to land on top with your helicopter and work down, you know, and you know, plant. You can, part of the part of the surveying prop, process is planning your LZs, your landing zones for the helicopter. Uh, remember, one time uh, we couldn't find a great LZ, so he, this helicopter uh, pilot, just put his front two uh, uh, struts, or what he, what he bent. You know the landing gear on the uh, side of the mountain. There's, well, this is where we're going to get out, and he's still flying with his uh, struts there. And we handed the equipment out. Sure enough, and, and, and uh, I have a picture of it, but a lost. It, or it's a <laughs> yeah, <laughs> unbelievable. Uh, so yeah, and then the mosquitoes, you know, so bad. You're, you, you know, you're still fully dressed in the middle. Middle of the summer, and you're eating your sandwich up under your bug net, and so you got bugs. You got helicopter danger, climbing danger, uh, and, and you know bears become secondary. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, well, you know, you mentioned the float plane thing. I was at a meeting, a West Fed meeting, actually in Anchorage. I uh, actually went to a, two or three meetings in the same hotel, um, and it was. R- In the meeting room where we were, it was a big glass window, of course, and and they left it open. And what we were looking at down below us was a place where all the float planes land. And it was just a constant stream of planes in and out of there. And that particular day on takeoff, they were coming our way, so they're coming up over the building. But uh, I I think somebody told me that in terms of numbers of landings and takeoffs, that particular place was as busy as pretty much anywhere in the country uh, just and, right. and and you know when you don't live there you don't think about the fact that getting supplies out into places up there is that's the only way you can do it
3: well when 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 uh, I worked in the high Arctic uh, there was a, a, a near tickettat mountain there was a lake where our supplies came into and there was a guy that ran in between what we worked on what was called a cat train back there is just Uh, you know, like trailers on tracks pulled by a D7 cat across as we're we're exploring and doing our oil exploration across the uh, north face of the Brooks Range in Alaska. And this guy'd go back and forth, back and forth uh, loading up with gas and supplies all the time to this lake where uh, another guy would keep it plowed all winter. And he lived in a hut there by himself all winter. I don't know
2: well, how I did that. <laughs> I don't, did you ever meet a guy? You might not have ever met this guy. He used to be on our Board of Governors, uh, George Strother. you remember him? Yeah, I do. Um,
3: I, I remember him from the board I, last
2: year. I asked him about about uh, flying, because, you know, he was a flyer. And I said, you know, do you ever have any difficulties? And his answer was, yeah, I've been a few of them up over time.
3: <laughs> well, like so I said, you know, I... Um, uh, uh, one of the owners of one of the companies I work for had a, helicopter, a fatal helicopter accident and ran into a power line. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of them. I, I I say these days, so I so I really still like helicopters. I I could very easily go the rest of my life without getting in a single engine 6 wing plane.
2: <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sure after all of those experiences up there, that that's. Uh that's quite the thing. We're a couple of minutes from break, so I want to pick up on the things that you're doing now when we come back. But in the last couple of minutes, I just wanted to kind of reminisce a little bit about having the opportunity to meet your dad. Um, every time I'm in Fredericksburg and I drive by the restaurant where we ate, <laughs> I think about that. And uh, that was such a, a a great day for me. I had such a good time meeting him.
3: Don't make me cry.
2: Oh, I'm not going to do that. I hope. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Well, that uh, what is it? Almonds barbecue there in Fredericksburg. Yep. Uh, you drove down from Washington, and we drove up from Richmond and had lunch together there. And um, I just had to be quiet because you and my dad started telling stories. And I think you guys knew people in common from down there, in Hills uh, Hillsville, because he worked for Southern States Cooperative, a feed and fertilizer cooperative, and he yep. he sold. Uh, Fertilizer, and and I, I believe you guys connected on a pretty good level there. And, uh,
2: yep. That, by the way, that same Southern state store is still in the same place in Hillsville. <laughs> I,
3: I I remember my dad would take me to work sometimes, and uh, and while he was meeting with the store manager, I'd climb all up and down those feed you know bags, and I'd make. I, you know, it's, 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 people now have those climbing walls they go on, but I had feed bags and uh, fertilizer bags, and...
2: and it was just it just as challenging, right?
3: I don't know. Billy really had kids back in those days. What do I know of that?
2: <laughs> yeah, uh, we all were back in those days, but uh, yeah, it was yeah, great talking yeah. to him because you're, you're right. We had a lot of things to to relate to. So, well, here we yeah. are, end of a, of our third. Segment. So let's go do that and come back. I want to talk about what you're doing now. So we'll be back in the last couple minutes.
0: Quick stakes is your answer to staking. Lightweight, easy to ride on, easy to use, easy to find, and won't break your back carrying them like the old fashioned wooden stakes. Have you tried a sample? If not, get a pen and paper and write down this number 800 438. 0387 or go to quickstate.com that's dot ecom and order your samples ask your surveying supply dealer for quickstakes today
2: my name is kyle hayes a motorsports student at alfred state college every year alfred state students compete in the great race which is a cross-country time endurance rally for vintage vehicles as you can imagine it's pretty costly i'm asking for your help your donation can make it possible for these students to live their passion and promote the vintage automobile industry. Please visit our site at give.alfredstate.edu and search Great Race to learn more and help us reach our goal. Thank you.
0: Quickstakes. Does your survey supply dealer have quickstakes? If not, demand that they start carrying quickstakes. Did you know that quickstakes are better for your back than your local chiropractor? lightweight and easier to use than the old heavy wooden steak. Order a sample today and prove it to yourself. Quick Steaks, your bike friendly steak. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank
1: you for listening.
2: And we're back with our last segment with Lloyd Tolbert today and uh, I guess we probably should get around to Talking about well the kind of things you're you're doing now. Um, now you went. You said you went to Oregon in '88. So was, was that the pre marijuana far, marijuana farm days? I guess, or was that already? The
3: yeah, future? it was. It, it was all under the table um, back then. I i uh, i i kind of i was. I, I didn't really know anything about it back then. I, uh, I wasn't involved with people that did marijuana um, until I started uh, becoming a full time musician again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and now I'm and now I'm surrounded by them. <laughs> but but uh, you're, you're, uh, I think it was like three years ago that marijuana, somewhere in there, that marijuana became legal in Oregon. It's decriminalized, legal. Um, I don't smoke, but many of my friends do, and it's nice that I'm a big proponent of it being decriminalized nationwide. And uh, that's about what I know about it.
2: (laughs) Yeah, one of the things you were telling me about when I was out there and we were we're driving about um, was the two different the two different things. You know, everybody thinks about marijuana in terms of the hallucinogen I guess, but there's practical uses for some particular and I don't know anything about it at all but some particular version of it that's used in business or industry did I feel well, that right
3: No you did um, and uh, there's two different strains. one has the uh, um, psychotropic uh, qualities and that's that's the THC. But then you, you get, there's also marijuana that does not have THC, and the, the, uh, what they draw from that is called TBD, and I don't know what the uh, acronyms stand for, but it's, it's for medicinal use. And they, uh, I guess it comes in all forms, ingestible. And actually, a friend of mine uh, gave me a little jar of, uh, of a gel that I use on my arthritis, and it's like a little miracle drug. There's a commercial for marijuana. (laughs) Anyway, um, and then I'll tell you, though, the the thing you notice around Eugene right now is that everywhere you drive in warehouse districts, the smell is just pouring out the buildings. What used to uh, be little shops and places where they stored boxes before they shipped are all now filled with marijuana growing operation and you can literally smell them you can't drive three blocks without a marijuana store here or even smelling it coming from somewhere that's the weird thing
2: now are they growing it inside the buildings
3: yeah they're growing it they're taking these huge warehouses and uh... uh... Grow- growing it in there
2: i see and now
3: now 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 the price is- <laughs> For all you people that do smoke, the prices are very low here now because they're starting to have, you know, the supply has met the demand. speak. <laughs> so yeah, and, and
2: I, 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 don't know, I don't recall you and I talking about you being involved in this part, but I've, I know I've talked to a couple of surveyors out there that, um, I guess, laying out the, the land plots where it's grown involve surveying obviously does that make sense
3: i would i would imagine you know because we have a um just relating it to the winery business um you know i i think um they probably would you know it, there's so many different strains and you know uh and uh, of pot and varietals of grape that's what i kind of relate it to that's the other big business out here in oregon um because oregon is becoming as well known as France for Pinot Noir and their Chard, Chardonnays, uh, that it really is an opportunity for a surveyor to kind of relate to GIS, um, because you, you know, there's so many different strains and different soil types and all that, that you can keep a good monitor of your plants, you know, how they're laid out, make a little map of all the different strains and how they're growing, and I, I don't know if that makes sense but
2: yeah I would assume that probably keeps the soil scientists busy as well.
3: I I there's labs <laughs> that have yeah there's specialty labs that you the marijuana growers can take their marijuana in and find the potency and all that they it's it's an industry here now.
2: And, and I know all that's happening, and I know that you are focusing—I won't say primarily, but at least to some degree—on the whole um, land use planning kind of thing. And uh, from that, I'm assuming that's helping people get permitting uh, passed through the local government or, or whatever. Yeah. I don't know well, to that, what extent that. That's 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 right.
3: The county, the county I live in. Um, um, and I haven't worked with any marijuana growers, but the county I live in I think has put a cap on the number of marijuana uh, farm facilities that can be out there.
2: Right. But your client base is probably not those guys so much. You're, you're assisting other people in getting through the whole planning system, I, th- I think.
3: Right, right. Well, um, yeah. I, I, a, a company I went for. To- to work for in 1991, uh, Pogue Engineering. Uh, instead of just the survey managers uh, just doing survey projects, he would he would put the whole project on your uh, table. I owe a whole lot to a fellow named Tom Pogue, and also to a surveyor that worked for Tom, works for Tom named John Oaks. I want to get their names out there because. Um, they're the ones that really gave me a permanent career and uh, allowed me to do what i do now and uh, so what they do is you um, i do what you call plan use planning uh, land use planning light like l i t e like the beer i mm-hmm. i not only if somebody comes in and wants to divide their property whether it be two pieces of property or a 10-lot subdivision. I don't really like to get too much bigger than that because I'm just a small mom and pop working out of my house. Um, I help them do all the application work that gets them through the city planning department as well as uh, going out and finding their boundaries and doing all the survey work uh, associated with uh, subdividing their property uh, whether uh, or a property line adjustment. And I, I... so I do I do the full meal deal, which a lot of surveyors don't like to do.
2: Right, yeah. Well, I I can appreciate that getting it through the planning process, uh, approval process. Um, I, I did a lot of that back in Blacksburg, and actually sat on the planning commission there uh, for several years right before I moved up here. But I got to, I got to know that whole system a whole lot better, and maybe even more than I wanted to get to know it back in those uh, days. Yeah. Because it can be complicated, yeah. You know? It can be, especially for you know, people I, with no experience.
3: Well, what? Um, well, see, I it brings up a thought. When, when it gets really, really complicated, if, if your if your municipality is able to keep the same employees for years and years, and you have an opportunity to develop relationships with them, right? Uh, then, then it the planning process becomes a lot easier. But if a, if a public entity has a lot of changeover and you've got new people in there that sometimes, you know, we joke that we have to train new staff to work for the city, um, uh, then it becomes a lot more complicated, I find. So a lot of it has to do with the turnover because, you know, people working for cities and city governments, they're they're looking for promotions and often change jobs and um I think that's the biggest challenge. If you have somebody that's like City Regine. I I love doing planning in City Regine because we've got long relationships and and we know what each other wants and you know we're not they're part of my, I I treat them like part of my team. I treat you know when a when someone hires me, they're also hiring them, and I, I treat them like that. So um, that helps a lot.
2: Yeah, and that's always obviously the best way to do things. Um, I know back in the days, this was late '80s, I guess, when I left down there. But that was sort of the early stages of uh, GIS and different kinds of of, of uh, planning tools that are, that are out there. And when you got people who really didn't understand the whole scope of how things fit together. They were just kind of depending on that one thing it made it more difficult than working with the people like you said who've been around a while and you have relationships with and can have those conversations um about what needs to be done rather than here, take this back, it's not right
3: yeah yeah that's the and that thats the old joke uh bring me a the planner hands you a rock he 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 goes, bring me a rock, and you bring him a rock and say, "Well, that's a rock, but it's not the right
2: rock." <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, I guess we all we run into those kind of uh uh people we're working with as well as clients sometimes, right? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, so. what?
3: you just that's that's a big part of getting any project done uh is uh treating everybody like, you know, everybody that's involved has a little piece of the project. And you you don't treat them like an adversary, you treat them like uh a human being. So Yep. Um absolutely. Can I, get, true. can I get in can I get in my one little uh soapbox thing before we go? Hey, yep we got, got to... two minutes. <laughs> two minutes. The, I really want to encourage people. I'm not on the national board of governors anymore, but I am an old surveyor that has things he thinks about. And uh I would like someday to see a survey truck license. Travel across the U.S. a little easier than it does now. We're asking our kids and demanding that our kids, in most states, get a four-year degree in something that they can only get licensed in in one state.
2: <laughs> well, you know that's and kind of beginning I, to happen. Um, yeah, the state of Kentucky just dropped its uh, in its state-specific exam. So, uh, oh, good. If if somebody's been through the whole NCWS thing and and taking the exam national exams, uh, they can apply in Kentucky without having to take a Kentucky specific exam.
3: Well, I'm hoping comedy does become a lot easier. I, I boy, I, have, I haven't thought it out that far that I would want to see a state specific exam dropped. But uh, yeah. anyway, I just wanted I wanted to get that in on your national radio show because it's one of my soapbox issues, and I appreciate you giving me the time to do it.
2: Yeah, and I, I, we're going to see more of that at some level. I, I'm I'm with you. I, I'd have a hard time just going cold turkey on the, on. Oh, no, you don't have to do this at all because there's so many differences that we see. But clearly, finding ways to uh, make people more more uh, m- movable around and you know, more versatile in places they can go is really important. So, well, in our last thirty thank seconds, you. I want to be sure I thank you for being with me today, Lloyd. It's been great. Uh, I value our friendship dearly, and I just appreciate you so much joining me today.
3: Uh, coming back at you, brother. Um, can't wait to see you next time. We get to run into each other and uh, wish you and your family nothing but, but uh, smooth sailing here on out.
2: Same to you, sir. We'll talk to you soon. All righty. Take care. You too.
0: You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.